My name is Dr. Anwar Osborne. And I'm Dr. Matthew Wheatley. And this is Pobscast. All right, good morning. This is Matt Wheatley. And this is Anwar Osborne. Welcome to Popscast. It is June 30th, so this is the last day of the academic year. Congratulations to all the residents who are finishing and getting promoted. And uh, I guess uh, Godspeed to all the interns that are starting tomorrow. Oh, my goodness. I, you know, I don't know about you, but I've worked... I worked like three or four July ones, and then I was like, no mas. So <laughs> I actually put in for... Some uh, some break time, uh, vacation. some buffer time. <laughs> I'm going on vacation for a week and a half. Oh gosh, uh, I I I am going to be working on July the first. I'm working an overnight, um, so it, it'll be fine. Oh my god, it'll be fine. <laughs> um, so we have a few things we wanted to discuss here, and then uh, we have a we have a very interesting interview that I think everybody's going to enjoy. So I don't know if you wanted to. Yeah, I'm excited about this that. show. You know, we actually got a lot of great feedback from the last episode where it was kind of a, a story format and uh, our goal was really to try to make it like one of those NPR kind of experiences. Yeah, and, w- without the money that goes into producing right. those, unfortunately. <laughs> it took a lot of time, but the, the thing that I think we did take out of it is that kind of having an engaging sort of guest on the show is... Uh, is something that people like and we can we can do that with our current budget that's true less our voices and more somebody else's voice who's smarter than us right that's always a good thing yeah so um this show is going to be really cool uh i we're going to be joined by dr barbara bacchus and in dutch barbara is b-r-a uh now b-a-r-b-r-a that's the name as opposed to barbara is how it's right. traditionally spelled. So, um, she was uh, really nice. She's the actual lead author from the very first Heart Score paper out of the Netherlands, and uh, we're gonna start uh, a new sort of segment called uh, "Who Do You Think Needs a Stress Test?" And why are we starting this segment? I mean, it's it's. Uh, I would say it's should be obvious for folks who work in EDs, but I think to back up and say. Well, why are we why are we putting time into this? Well, I think it's one of those things that comes up a lot. And when I say comes up a lot, it's one of the things that we argue about a lot. Not not Dr. Wheatley and I, but externally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, it, I think there's a lot of practice variation and I think the question is simple and everybody has an answer and we wanted to talk to the people who really would have like a salient point of view about it. So I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying you and I are old, but I am retaking my boards this year. So that, that at least, what was the what was what was it like when you were a med student and early training in residency in terms of seeing low risk chest pain patients? Who, what was the algorithm? Because mine was pretty much everybody went somewhere inside the hospital. We, yeah. we had a chest pain unit. Uh, kind of a nascent chest pain unit at Grady and at, at the other hospitals at Emory. And so uh, usually if somebody had any kind of modicum of risk factors, they went, they got admitted or went to the OBS unit. And there was no, there was no talk of discharging folks. What right. was it like for you? That's pretty much it. Um, I did a combined residency of EM and IM. So I kind of got to see it from both sides. And how I kind of describe it is much like what you're talking about, you know, people get a stress test. And the thing is, we didn't have uh, the second generation troponins. We didn't right. have contemporary troponins. Oh, we were still doing CPK and CKMB. Exactly. So as we read. So my intern year, we had basically this sort of thing where you came in and it was just hard to get sent home unless you really objected. Right. And the page would come across, it would be CP Romy, and I would get yep. that page as a medicine intern, and that would basically commit the patient to 24 hours at least right. in the hospital. I remember as a fourth-year med student are doing a sub-I on medicine, my senior would call them USA Romy's, unstable angina, rule out MI. Wow. So it was USA Romy. <laughs> uh, was the... 
somewhat pejorative term, not towards the patient. It was more towards the ER for, right. for not being able to make a decision. Right. Um, but it's interesting, the history in this, because this is the kind of fertile ground through which OBS was born, mm-hmm. in that there were a lot of patients that ED docs didn't feel comfortable sending home, but didn't want to admit. And so, you know, along comes chest pain centers and ED OBS units, and this is where Lou Graf and Mike Ross showed that, yeah, we're able to save people's lives by not sending them home through this. But this was pre-contemporary troponin. This is, some of it was pre-troponin at all. And so you're using LDH and myoglobin and you're reading tea leaves, basically, to right. determine if this person's got a, you know, if you had somebody with a really good story, sometimes you had to sell it to a cardiologist. And even if they had weekly positive biomarkers, you know, you were you were really having to use other things in their story and their um, and and their testing to say whether you thought this person had unstable engine or not. Along comes troponin, which in the early days was uh, a fantastic test. It was one of these things where they said, if this person's making troponin, they're having an MI and they need to go to the cath lab. Right. And it was supposed to be, you know, don't even don't even think twice about it. Just activate the cath lab if the troponin's positive because this is it. It's it's a very specific marker for the heart. Of course, as, as it's come out and it's become more sensitive, it's turned out that that's not true, that right. people make troponin for all sorts of reasons that aren't, that they have a clot in one of their coronary arteries. It's right. still coming from the heart, but it's, you know... And it's it, still bad. It's still bad, right. but it doesn't necessarily mean they need to go to the cath lab. And so it's... Uh, but it's increased our negative predictive value for folks with negative troponins. Right. So, so where do you think... Uh, and I know we're going to get into that a little bit with the interview with Dr. Bacchus, but mm. where do you think that leaves us now for in terms of uh, mm. uh, what kind of things we can say about folks with low-risk chest pain? Uh, I think uh, that's a great question. I, you know, I in my mind, I think we have to balance the dangers of testing in patients that we are pretty sure are going to have a negative test in that you know, you put people on this pathway where they're probably going to have a negative test. And if they have a positive test, it's going to lead to things that are probably ultimately going to be negative. Right. Right. Um, and you know, one of the, one of the quotes in the, the literature reviews was, it's almost like getting a pregnancy test on a man, (laughs) right? You get the, you, you know, it's probably going to be negative. And if, if it's positive, you're going to do further testing. Maybe you'll figure out a way to do a pelvic on a man. <laughs> but, but those are things that are dangerous that are, are not going to work out. I think we are just now getting a good body of evidence that allows us to do stuff that I think we've always thought is is right. I mean, I, I, I you would hold your nose sometimes when you would admit some of these, you know, usaromies as they were called, that mm-hmm. you knew, oh, it's just going to have a negative stress test or you put them in the OBS unit. And you know the test is going to be negative or you're, you're fairly certain the test is going to be negative. And if it's positive, it's more likely a false positive. And, right. and then you get stuck with having to admit them and call cardiology. But you put them in the OBS unit and you know it's going to be negative, but you're just doing it to kind of check a box or to further mitigate your risk. Right. Um, and the nice thing is that they are actually doing stuff on the on the back end in the cardiology literature. They've found that you know if you give somebody a total, as you call it, like a metal metal endoskeleton in their coronaries, <laughs> that that's actually those people don't have better outcomes. Right. So if you just go cath people and say, well, this guy's got a seventy percent lesion, he's doing great, he's not having any angina, but we're going to go ahead and stent this lesion. Right. That person does worse than than the person with a 70% lesion right. that is having symptoms, that is having an MI, right. and that's a culprit lesion. And so, you know, this is where you get into this iatrogenesis and, over, you know, over-testing and over-medicalization of some of these patients that, that, that might not need it. And, you know, at least at our shop, we got a lot of folks with a lot of bad risk factors who come in with a horrible chest pain story, and you're stuck in this kind of gray area of, well, you know, you're 60, you smoke, you have diabetes and hypertension, but you're complaining of continuous sharp chest pain on the right side of your chest for the last week. So nothing in that story would make me say you're having a heart attack, but your EKG is not totally normal. You do have some LVH or whatever, um, and your risk factors suck. Um, So 
the nice thing is you've got now I think through the heart score and and I'll have a caveat right there you know we're going to talk a lot about the heart score there are other scores out there that right. other people use I know Dr. Frank Peacock at the most recent uh, MSEP OBS conference talked about the EDACS score which is a score he is a proponent of and he right. uses um, I know that uh, Eric Hess from Mayo Clinic has used uh, has used Timmy and has actually done some research showing uh, Timmy's utility in an ED patient population. Um, there are other scores like the Grace score and stuff like that. But you know, for the sake of argument, we'll talk about the Heart score. I think there are a lot of people who are familiar with it and are comfortable with it, and uh, I, there probably need to be more data to suss this out head to head to see if if there is a better score or if they're all equivalent. Right. Uh, uh, it's hard to say, but. Uh, now it's nice to have things like the heart score. Yeah, it's easy to remember. Right. Like that's that's one of the things that's pretty attractive about this one as opposed to the other one. And I think yeah. it's a big part of the reason why it's stuck. Yeah, uh, true. EDAC's like, I got a pretty good memory. I still have to look it up. Yep. And, uh, Same with Grace. Grace is Grace. Very, I think Grace is cumbersome. designed for the computer. I don't think you're yeah. supposed to remember that. But right. heart, like you can remember that. Right. You know? Even though I still look it up. <laughs> well, yeah, I do too, just to make sure I'm getting the the verbiage right on it. And there is some subjectivity for heart in terms right. of, you know, I, I find that folks that I'm less concerned about, my gestalt is lower, I will score them lower. And then if the, you know, because the first two things are the history and the EKG. Right. And so the history, it's, it's a three-point scale. And so if you're concerned about, you know, they don't, they don't go very specific and to right. say how many accurate historical variables are there i mean if you've right. got a 80 year old complaining of epigastric pain i mean they're not really having chest pain but you may say no i'm very concerned about this so right. there is a little bit of a subjectivity there is it. some and uh you know i actually we didn't talk to dr bacchus about that specifically yeah. but, but we'll, we'll 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 circle back to that yep. and when we talk to dr bacchus but the the meat of the show today uh we were going to talk about uh, some uh, current policy in how it relates to OBS. So what was your take on uh, overall OBS in the world of modern policy? Well, I think there's been a couple things that have come out, and some of these may be specific to the state of Georgia, although I know that there's uh, probably some broader reaches for this. So number one is Blue Cross Blue Shield has come out and said that they're going to not pay for emergency visits that are viewed in a post hoc analysis as being non-emergent. Right. Yeah, um, that, that's been on the national news, yeah. uh, but it's very much a uh, state issue that's come up here in Georgia. Right. I mean, and it's probably going to be individual states will have this and then, it, you know, some states will, some states won't, but it may end up being national. And I know that the uh, Senate bill uh, currently you know the Senate health care bill that's currently being worked on and up for up for vote uh, has some provisions regarding emergency care and and, right. and funding for that. Um, and then the second one was uh, there's increased pressure on emergency providers specifically regards to opiate prescriptions and some limits on that. Um, so the first thing, the Blue Cross Blue Shield, I think has some could have some tentacles into the observation world. Um, you know, I, I'd be interested to hear any of the uh, people listening can comment on, you know, if they have some better knowledge of it. And, you know, my question is, if somebody comes into the ED with chest pain or abdominal pain and goes to an observation unit, basically gets seen by an emergency provider who is concerned enough about the patient to continue their care in an observation setting, and then as 80% of them do, they go home. Right. Uh, how will that be viewed by insurers? So if somebody has chest pain and then their chest pain, well, I think it's after a negative stress, let's say, or after troponins, or they see a cardiologist, oh, this chest pain's just GERD. And then that goes back to the insurer. Is the insurer then not going to pay for the whole bit if, it, if it's turned out to be a non-emergent condition? Um, you know, because the problem is there is a there is a disconnect in with Mtala being 
an emergency is defined as what a prudent layperson thinks is an emergency. Now, you know, I may think my hangnail is, is an emergency. Right. Um, and then sometimes, you know, you might have uh, uh, a felon or a... Uh, or some sort or, or a flexor tenus onivitis, right. right? And that could be you could totally get that from a hangnail, exactly. Uh, and you could lose your whole finger, yeah. right? And what are we going to do to provide the type of education necessary to the? It, I don't know if that's possible. Yeah, you know. Yeah. A while ago, uh, this a similar th sort of thing was tried out in Washington, right? Washington State, right? And uh, that one was put forth by as a, it was a Medicaid provision, I believe that they did not want to pay after the fact for ER visits that they considered non-urgent. And it was actually ASAP, and more specifically Washington ASAP, that really put their foot down on this one. And if there's ever a reason or a purpose in supporting ASAP, it's to put a stop to things like this. Right. If you want to protect the people that have very little in your job, like this is the mechanism. And... ASEP and specifically Washington ASEP made that a hard stop for certain. Right. And I, I've, what I've seen in that EM docs group is that, you know, national ASEP is getting involved in, mm -hmm. in this kind of issue. I mean, as much as I think we can feel hamstrung by EMTALA, we also don't want patients that are at, are concerned and are injured and ill at home to fear financial retribution and not seek appropriate care. Right. So, so the, uh, there's actually Anthem, uh, which is like the parent company for Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, they have there's like 2,000 or so diagnoses that they're proposing are non-urgent, right? And right. Uh, I don't know if, if you read read any of these ones. I, I'm but, not familiar with but them. But some some of them, right? Uh, some of these diagnoses uh, w would most certainly. Uh, send somebody to the ER. If you yourself, as not just a prudent layperson, but as a board-certified emergency physician, physician, if you had chest pain on breathing, you would go to the ER, <laughs> right? Right. Like, that is a reason to go. If that was your mom, you would go. Another one they had, uh, a, a acute conjunctivitis, right? Now, what if that's gonorrhea? Right. Right? You go blind. Like, there's no way for you to know that at home. Uh, and influenza is on that list also. Right. And how many people do we like, uh, I have, uh, not personally had a death in the ER from influenza, but I've certainly admitted them for medicine and some of those people do poorly. Oh yeah. Uh, and there just needs to know. Well, and even the ones that don't do poorly look horrible when they, yeah. you know, the ones that are sick enough to access care in the emergency department look horrible. Right. Um, we did a podcast just this past spring about influenza and OBS. I mean, that's a, it's a real thing that they need some fluids and stuff like that. I mean, not, not all patients with influenza, obviously, but, um, it, you know, my concern is that again, if this turns into kind of another unfunded mandate, um, I mean, this will hurt our patients. Definitely. It may hurt the ED and that people will come sicker than when, you know, right. But it's really going to hurt primary care physicians, you know, right. because really what this is doing is it's, what, it, what it's saying is that, well, for this conjunctivitis or this influenza, you know, uncomplicated influenza, what you really need to do is you need to go to your primary care doctor and you need to see them first and get some treatment, et cetera, et cetera. That's fine. The, that's fine. A, if you have the ability to get a primary care doctor, and then B, if you have the ability to get in and see that primary care and doctor. And see if your primary care doctor knows what they're doing. Right. Like, I, I would challenge most uh, newscasters or policy persons to call your doctor and tell them, your primary care doctor, and say, I want to come in to be evaluated with chest pain on breathing and see what happens. See how many of you don't get directed directly to the <laughs> You're emergency department. You're going to be sent right to the ER. Right. And so, I mean, if Blue Cross Blue Shield wants to encourage the providers that accept their insurance to be able to handle that, God bless them. Right. They can do that 24 hours well, a day. And, and great. And pay them appropriately so they can see yeah. enough, you know, so they can staff their offices to see enough patients and be able to do the diagnostics and stuff like that. You know, I don't, again, I don't want to say this is just uh, primary care bashing because that's a, that is a hard job. It's and, hard. And so, unfortunately, this is going to put more onus on them right. to, uh, to, to, handle to handle some of these patients. I mean, the... Uh, the opiate prescription thing, I think, is, 
you know, obviously I think you still need to engage in discussion with your patients, whether they're in the ED or the observation unit upon discharge and say, this is, this is the pain regimen that I'm recommending right now. Um, I mean, I think at least for us, I think we are supposed to, we are required to register with our state uh, prescription drug monitoring plan. And I think there's some verbiage in there about, you know, we need to be checking it frequently and making sure our DEA numbers aren't being used in, inappropriately. And then there's some caps on the number of narcotic pills we are able to provide for patients, which in some ways may be uh, an easier way to d discuss that with patients. You know, I know you want me to give you... One big word salad, one uh, that comes up a lot, particularly if you're making big money and you're a consultant, is this uh, macro, right? Um, and uh, so I did uh, did some reading about that. There, there's a handful of uh, ER articles in um, kind of like the para para scientific journals about what are we going to do about that. So. Uh, MACRA stands for Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act of 2015. And if you were practicing for a while, you remember the sustainable growth rate formula and how much uh, bogus that was, or, or there was a lot of angst about how the people were getting paid for outpatient or Medicare Part V visits, right? Right. So basically, this uh, bipartisan bill kind of uh, repeals the SGR formula and replaces it with uh, more value-based kind of metrics. And uh, so that's like the overriding thing. And then underneath that is there's uh, two kind of payment structures uh, within that where in which you could uh, continue to have this uh, formally kind of SGR sort of thing get you paid as a, for outpatient services. And uh, those two kind of structures are, uh, sh in short, MIPS and APMs, right? So uh, APM stands for Alternative Payment Models. So uh, off the bat, like, we're, that's not going to be a lot of ER doctors. So alternative payment models will kind of be like if you had a is medical that I, home. Is that where I give you a sheep or something like that? <laughs> take my gallbladder out? And I <laughs> a barter system. <laughs> that's good. Uh, it, it is an alternative payment. Well, Bitcoin. Bitcoin payments. That's right. <laughs> but uh, it's kind of where, like, you would have an ACO, which is like an HMO that is run by your health care organization. That's probably, probably not something that most uh, ER doctors are going to be able to be a part of. That's kind of like the easy way out if you can if you can do it, though, as far as like the math on getting paid. It's like a, a very fixed rate of growth in, in that uh, setting. And so you kind of self-incentivize for quality metrics to improve this group of humans. But the, the one that's more pertinent for ER is uh, MIPS, which is the Merit-Based Incentive Payment Program. And uh, basically, this uh, MIPS is a lot like some of the quality stuff that we used to do, like PQRS uh, and whatnot. And it combines PQRS and a couple other quality kind of measures. Uh, and in 20, I think, 19, um, it's going to take all of those and uh, put them together so that you can get a score and the score will dictate how much more money you'll get uh, either as an individual or in our case at Grady as a group right so um, what are the components of that score is the next thing uh, one is the uh, the biggest piece is uh, the quality part and we'll come back to that because that's that's the uh, the thing that kind of touches OBS the uh, advancing care in uh, information, which is kind of meaningful use and your EMER stuff that comes up, um, resource use uh, um, and uh, clinical uh, practice improvement activities. That's another one that kind of touches on OBS. So uh, is this a, am, am I losing you yet? <laughs> It's a, it's a lot of it's a lot of words. It's a lot of words. So, so like so, the big thing is macro. The two pieces of macro are um, MIPS and APMs. APMs probably not for ER. MIPS gives you a score uh, that's going to take over in 2019. And as part of the score, yeah, there's four parts. So, uh, and the biggest part of this score is the quality piece. And so you can pick 
like these six quality metrics that uh, you report basically. And um, there's a 15, there's like 70 or 80 that you can potentially do. And there's 15 that they think are ER appropriate. Not a lot of them touch ob. Some of them could. And, you know, it's kind of up to the and practice. It, and is this to affect Medicare hospital payments, right? Or is this for... Uh, this is for provider payments. Provider payments. Provider payments for Part B. So, okay. like, this is why people people care so much about it. Right, Because right. uh, it's going to hit us in the pocket, pocketbook. Yeah. And uh, so, so some of them that might be uh, appropriate care of uh, TIA patients, um, there's some uh, that I think will probably be in the future would be for blunt head injury and whether or not you get a CT, right? Like, right. like at Grady, we kind of set up an infrastructure for the sicker patients. Right, right. Uh, and um, so the, a lot of them don't really grab OBS like up front, but it's important, I think, to know because it's still an outpatient thing. Um, one of them that uh, the OBS directors nationally, I know, play a role in uh, is chest pain center stuff. Right. In, in chest pain quality initiatives. And so door to EKGs can be one of those. Uh, and the other one that is going to touch on OBS is the clinical practice improvement activity or EQUAL. EQUAL is one of those things that you could sign up for. So um, ASAP has some sort of arm where they put on these webinars and workshops. Uh, I'm doing one in August, I think, about how to optimize your observation unit for proper care of ER patients. So um, that's one of the ways you can have it touch. Uh, so uh, just that, you know, we're all aware uh, these new things might play a role for us. So so, so tell, tell me about the ACHA or the Better Care Reconciliation Act. What did uh, you think about that? First point is I was on vacation last week, so I <laughs> delightfully didn't uh, get to hear much uh, hear much news on it. I, I mean, I think the big the big question is just about uh, people losing coverage. Um, I mean, that's at least the thing that is dominating the news cycle. Is you know, I think the House bill it was somewhere north of twenty million, and they're th they're thinking the Senate bill will improve that. Um, it's hard to say the state of Georgia that did not take the Medicaid expansion. So I think we had some of the highest uninsured. Uh, I don't know how it'll affect folks in, in that realm. There have been talks about uh, Medicaid cuts going forward to, you know, 2019. And then um, I know, you know, people who are currently insured with government conditions, uh, you know, government, sorry, people who are currently insured with government health care with pre-existing conditions, I know that they would be not necessarily at risk of losing their benefits totally, but would be put into either high-risk pools or have uh, yearly or lifetime benefit caps where if somebody's very ill, right. you know, they can, they can essentially, they can functionally lose their insurance just by uh, getting their routine care right uh, or or you know emergency or hospital they could get care. a program where they're like this is stupid to pay for why would i pay for yeah that? um so I, you know i think uh i think the fear is that uh a lot of folks who are in who are already at risk um financially are are going to be at further risk for having to pay for their health care and and you know Working in an inner city ED, you already you already see right. the writing on the wall for that. And if that were to get worse uh, across the country, or if that were to get worse even in our backyard, I mean that that could really be catastrophic. And and the concern I think is that you know that that there will be uh, you know people will die behind this. You know right. they just won't be able to seek the care they need. Yeah, I, I think you know what I saw was basically what you, what you're talking about, like the the big the big one is the Medicare expansion uh, rollback. So, you know, previously there was, you could take, you, you would have, be able to get Medicare uh, under ACA up to 138% of the poverty level. And that's for a family of four, we're talking like somewhere around $30,000 a year. And, uh, you know, for me, you know, not to um, play the politics of it, but, you know, how much do you make? Some of, some of my favorite, Atlantans make around that much money and they work at Waffle House. Right. And uh, like 
I, you know, we've all had them here. If you're just listening to the show, uh, Waffle House was started uh, in Atlanta. Like, right, right, right down the road from us, actually, in Avondale Estates, Georgia. Estates, Georgia. So whenever I think about what is the poverty limit or poverty level for these people, I think about folks that work at Waffle House. So, um, so yeah, so rolling back on that ability to get government matching funds will um, – uh, will definitely take people off of the Medicare rolls, and then obviously there's no in, individual mandate. I mean, that's it's a real thing. I mean, you see people every day in the ED with chronic complaints that you know our professional society says basically you need to you know do whatever you need to do to ensure there's no emergency going on and then you kind of pat them on the back and say go to your primary care doctor but if there is no primary care doctor and there's no ability to get a primary care doctor then all of a sudden it becomes very real right. you know all of a sudden blood pressure and blood sugar or you know right. little masses or skin lesions or stuff like that 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 folks with access or with money or with means can get taken care of and this isn't concierge care. This isn't, you know, this right. isn't cosmetic surgery or anything like that. These are real things. You know, if right. somebody, if somebody who works gets injured and they can't use their hand anymore because it was crushed. Right. You yeah. know, how, how are they to, how are they to help themselves? I don't know. I mean, yeah. again, we don't, we try not to get terribly political here, but I think in terms of, uh, in terms of protecting our patients, you know, I think people just need to be aware of, of right. what's going on in the landscape. It's now. not all homeless schizophrenic cis effects. So, right. and, and to, for the ops, for the ops point, like a lot of, a lot of those diabetics that are kind of out of control are going to end up in the ops unit. So, um, definitely. we're definitely, you know, it's going to be part of what we do. The, the, the other big, uh, thing that, um, kind of touches on ops is the, uh, uh, exemption from following what's essential health benefits. So, one of the provisions of ACA is it just kind of defined what uh, an insurance plan is. And when I try to explain it to my friends who aren't in healthcare, I'm just like, you know, you're, when you get auto insurance, it's not insurance if it doesn't have three or four things. We've right. decided that as a society, like you need like to what, cover what minimum coverage is. Basically. Right. You need, to, you need to know what minimum coverage, like you can't smash into people and have insurance and ha not have insurance pay for when you smash into a human. Right, right, right. That's not insurance. That's right. just them taking your money for nothing. Right. So, so essential health benefits uh, kind of defines defines those. And that's not, I'm not trying to say that um, that the ones the essential health benefits that are in ACA are all actually essential, but uh, the ones that cover ER visits and mental health and opioid uh, and substance abuse, uh, in my opinion, I think should be essential. And so when that is not part of that, uh, which kind of ties in, dovetails with the Blue Cross Blue Shield kind of take on what's an ER visit. You know, that's going to be uh, kind of a negative disincentive for the patients who have these kind of um, tailored minimum coverage plans to come to the ER. And, you know, me, you know, Dr. Wheatley and I always say, if you don't have OBS, you don't have a pro you have a problem because you're, you're going to come to the ER. Right. You're, we, you know, you can pretend like your blood sugar is not a big deal and you might not be able to see a primary care doctor. Uh, we're going to see you one day. Yeah. You know, so uh, and that person might go to OBS. So. Right. Well, and I mean, you got to think of then the quality of life of that person that, that for years has been unable to get routine primary care and, and, and you know, the worry that goes along with that. And it's, you know. Right. Uh, so, uh, so that kind of wraps it up. We talked about, you know, some, uh, uh, we talked about the, the Blue Cross Blue Shield anthem thing. That's, that's going to touch OBS, I think a little bit. I think, uh, you, you we, uh, talked about the, the macro, uh, that's going to touch OBS maybe a little bit, uh, the opioid stuff we talked about a little bit. I mean, I think it'll affect practicing doctors everywhere. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it'll affect folks that prescribe opiates on discharge so do, do you do you put any uh opiate patients in the ops unit opiate withdrawal people or not uh you know that's a that's a good question i i'm gonna say yes because mm -hmm. i think we um i think we don't recognize sometimes when some of these chronic pain patients are really opiate withdrawal 
And yeah. the problem with opiate withdrawal is they come in and they're vomiting right. and they have belly pain and they usually look uh, in distress and a lot of times they're tachycardic. I mean, it's very easy to see somebody with musc chronic musculoskeletal pain and say, I'm yeah. not giving you opiates, you're fine, you're gonna, there's no medical emergency, you're going to go home. But somebody with... Uh, somebody with chronic abdominal pain that comes in essentially with opiate withdrawal and really you, you can get that out of the history okay well what do you take well I take Percocet well when did you run out well I ran out yesterday okay well now we know why you're having pain right, and why right. all of a sudden your gastroparesis flared up or your abdominal migraines or whatever you know yeah. why that flared up so um, you know somebody that comes in and says I'm withdrawing from heroin uh, I would say we typically don't put in the OBS unit I see um, yeah. but I think folks that come in with chronic abdominal pain that you kind of, you know, you hydrate up, you check some labs, you know, maybe you get a CT if you're concerned, you know, if they have a rigid abdomen or something like that, but you get some labs, you give them some fluids and, um, they're not better after, you know, after kind of a round or two of treatment, mm -hmm. we get those in the OBS unit a lot and they yeah. actually don't, they don't do poorly. I mm -hmm. mean, a lot of them get, get discharged. Now, um, I, I, and I think there is some evidence of kind of opioid tolerance, opioid withdrawal in those folks. Um, now, you know, to have a really robust protocol, I know that there's one um, internal medicine physician at Grady mm. who will take those folks and will, will, the ones who are interested in it will do opiate detox with them and will put them on things like clonidine and stuff like that mm. if they have kind of narcotic gut syndrome and, you know, he he tries to recognize that and diagnose that in his patients when it's appropriate and will get them off of the opiates altogether and onto non-narcotic treatments. Wow. Those are things that I think are kind of out of the scope of ED and OBS physicians. I mean, that is not something that you're doing in 12 to 24 hours. That is something you're doing over a couple of days and likely over weeks and months. I mean, these are people that you need to see back in clinic. You need to check in with them. You need to see how they're doing, yeah. not, not, you know, we're going to kind of tune you up and get you on your way. Right. Um, and I think it also, like any other addiction, there has to be a recognition of a problem and a, a desire to change. You right. know, if these are folks that don't feel they're dependent on opiates or are not wanting to come off the opiates for whatever reason, it's, that's a difficult, that's a different conversation you're having with that person than the person that's like, look, I'm hooked on these pain pills and I, I need help getting off these pain pills much like a conversation with a smoker or an alcoholic or, you know, somebody who does any other kind of controlled substances that, you know, is, is wanting to change. There's that readiness for change that, you know, we can assess for as clinicians, but if they're not at that, if they're not at that point, then it's hard to just, you know, we can cut the opioids off and say, you're not getting any more. Um, but in terms of actually, uh, you know, and a lot of folks will say that's what's fueling the heroin problem is, as, the, you know, Percocets and Vicodins dry up on the street, you know, and heroin becomes more easy to find and cheaper. Right. That's, that's where people are turning to. Yeah. I so, guess. I don't know. Yeah. But it, this, on, that, that on that happy note. On that happy note, we're, after this quick break, we're going to be back and uh, we're going to go and share our uh, Dr. Barbara Bacchus interview. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, this is Matt Wheatley. And this is Onwar again, and we want you to come out to see us in September uh, this year for the Observation Medicine Science and Solutions Conference. Are you the director of an observation unit that just started, or have you had an observation unit that you're looking to grow? Uh, do you have billing or coding questions? Well, all that stuff's going to be answered at the conference this year. Right. We're going to be talking about the newest and latest protocols. We're going to have the leaders and the people who publish the papers there, unlike a lot of observation conferences. And we're going to be at the Doubletree downtown in Nashville, one of my pl favorite places to go. Yeah, uh, we had the conference there two years ago, and uh, it rained the first night, but uh, we still had a great time, had a great attendance. Um, so we're back there by popular demand right so september 14th and 15th 2017 nashville tennessee the double tree hilton uh nashville downtown and it is put on by the michigan college of emergency physicians you can go to mset.org for more information or you could go to obsprotocols.org and click the link there so hopefully we see you then all right
So, Doctor Bacchus, uh, we uh, we were having we were having beers when we were talking about asking her. I forget, but um, what you said to me, he was like, all she could say is no. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's right. So, I um, the next day I went and Googled um, her name and the studies, and I, there was a on the paper there was like a contact information and her name was on it so and shot her an email she said she'd love to be on the show so uh dr barbara bacchus is uh currently practicing in uh the, the netherlands which uh is six hours ahead of us and uh she is uh, amazingly still in training right so she put together this heart score thesis um before she started training and she says it's pretty uncommon in the, the Netherlands. And she uh, is now in training with about a year and a half to go. And like she's uh, pretty renowned within the specialty for this hard score thing. And she says she attributes it to luck, but I think she's probably smarter than she lets us. She's certainly smarter than me. <laughs> so That's true. And she's, she's like our age, so, you know. Makes me feel good. Bad. Yeah, exactly. Good, <laughs> good on her for doing what we couldn't. <laughs> but uh, so she practices um, in a system which, uh, you know, we didn't include all the audio from this, uh, that where the cardiologists uh, kind of, it seemed like they have a lot of say in what happens to these patients. I mean, based on the interview, I would say that it's not dissimilar to where we're at, where there's not, you know, she said there's not a lot of protocolization in terms of, um, even from an ED side of saying, okay, well, this person with this lower score, you know, risk factors or whatever, whether you, whether they're actually using her score or not, mm -hmm. uh, this person can go home or this person comes in and gets this kind of testing and it is left up. You know, she said it, if it's a certain cardiologist that's on, they're all going to want stress tests. If it's a different one, then they may not. So, uh, I actually found it, you know, Maybe it was reassuring that they don't necessarily <laughs> yeah, have it all figured out. <laughs> that we're not in worse straits than they are. But but, um, uh, but yeah, so we kind of wanted to make this a recurring segment. Uh, we need to get some recurrent segment music, which I think. Yeah. Maybe we can ask uh, DJ Serengeti Yeti to give us something. Who knows? Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> but um, he, the segment is going to be called, uh, you know, who, who do you think needs a stress test? And so we put that question to her, and uh, she shared with us her response. One of the things that um, a lot of folks over here have been using to kind of stratify who, not just who is high risk, but who's likely to have a positive stress test is the heart score, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was wondering if you could share kind of like your take on where the heart score has gone to as far as um, it being used to determine uh, further provocative testing for patients. My hospital is using the heart score, and I think in the Netherlands we have approximately 90 or 95 um, uh, hospitals with an emergency department, and I think that three quarters of them are using the heart score for risk stratification of patients with chest pain. Um, so in the Netherlands as well as well it's it's used a lot um, and then I think the main decision for um, where, where we use hard for is to admit or discharge a patient from the emergency department and it depends a little bit on the cardiologist uh, whether or not they would like to do uh, provocative testing in this patient and it also depends on, on the patient and, and their complaints. And what I notice is that mainly in the in intermediate risk group um, stress testing is performed, especially after a second troponin um, and in the low risk group, um, sometimes they do nothing. Sometimes they order them back for an outpatient uh, stress test. And sometimes um, uh, they just send them home and never see them again. 
So it depends a little bit on which cardiologist is in charge that day or evening. Um, and I don't think there's, there's a, a very good general approach yet. What do you think it should be? Well, um, we did write an article uh, on our uh, prospective validation study, and we did a sub-analysis in four of the ten hospitals. And um, in those four hospitals, we had approximately 250 patients who uh, were uh, stress tested. Um, so we um, looked at the uh, initial heart score and uh, the risk of maze in this group. Um, and then we looked at their, at their stress testing and whether the stress test was negative, inconclusive or positive. And it turned out that mainly in the low risk group, um, we had uh, over 60% uh, of patients had a negative test. Uh, approximately 30% of patients had a non-conclusive test and 8% had a positive test. But all these positive tests were false positives. So um, in the low risk category of the heart score, um, according to our study, stress testing does not seem to um, uh, give a better direction which patient is or isn't at risk for a maze. When you do an exercise test and it ends up being positive, then a lot of people think that's due to uh, coronary artery disease. So patients are kept in the hospital for longer and sometimes a coronary angiogram uh, is, is performed. Uh, so you even have uh, the chance for more iatrogenic um, uh, risk. Here, we run into a lot of um, knowledge translation Meaning mm -hmm. that, you know, people are very familiar with the study, but they have a hard time practicing that way when they're face-to-face -face with a patient. Mm -hmm. Currently, I think we have approximately 15 uh, validation studies of the heart score with over 20,000 patients. And the risk of MACE in the low heart category is very, very low. It's approximately 1.5-1.6%. Uh, and when you add a second troponin to that, the risk even gets lower, usually less than 1%. And we see that in the studies of Simon Mahler with the heart pathway in the USA. And um, uh, Simon Mahler and uh, Judith Boldervaart um, in the Netherlands both did um, an implementation study of the heart score and looked at the uh, possible reduction of um, uh, admission costs, uh, additional troponin testing, uh, outpatient visits, or uh, stress testing. And it turns out that uh, the risk of maze is so low in this heart, uh, low-risk low heart score, that uh, a bicycle exercise test with all these false positives uh, and in inconclusive tests doesn't seem to add something um, in the low heart right. uh, category. And I think that it mainly adds uh, patient satisfaction or patient reassurance or physician reassurance. Right. right. And that's probably something that has to grow in the near future um, when we got more and more adjusted to using the hard score and we keep having a better feeling with this low heart category that we really believe that, that the risk in these patients is so low that 
it doesn't make a lot of sense to all stress test them. Right. But perhaps maybe just to send them back to the general practitioner, give them advice, ask them to come back if their complaints return, make an outpatient follow-up or something like that. But why do we all have to stress test them? But yeah, that's cool. That's cool for our first segment. I'm very proud proud of us. That's, that's, I think it's going to be pretty awesome going forward. I think yeah. maybe maybe Simon Mailer would do it next time. Yeah, I I think uh, so. He's he took the heart score and developed the heart pathway, yeah. um, which. Right. Uh, basically adds a time element to it and serial troponins. And I mean, that's th something I use personally when I'm seeing patients. Uh, and it's allowed me to feel good about discharging a, yeah. a good number of folks. Um, and you, you kind of use that with the uh, kind of shared decision-making yeah. thing that uh, Eric Hess is popular. Popular. We need to get him to the segment too. That's true. <laughs> I mean, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of uh, voices we can hear on this and, yeah. and, you know, I think as as you mentioned, this is just the beginning of a conversation on this. Yeah. Um, but as emergency physicians who see chest pain every day, um, it, it would be good to have a um, you know a pathway, a protocol yeah. for this that that made you feel good at the end of the day about who you're sending out. Yeah, but uh, but you know, awesome. I'm very happy that she was on the show. Thank you so yeah. much, Dr. Bacchus. Thank you. And um, we'll be joining you later on uh, in July after... When, when are you going to Germany? Uh, Is that August? It, it's, uh, it's Greece, but it's in November. <laughs> <laughs> One of them places across the pond. In, no, in uh, when? Right. In uh, uh, September. September. Okay. All right. So we'll be able to get one done. Uh, but um, like we always say at the end of the show, if you don't have OVS, you've got a problem. All right. Until next time, guys. All right.